and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Carlos N. Chapman, Assistant Professor of Law at Washington and Lee University School of Law, and Anthony Michael Kreiss, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Chicago Kent College of Law. They will discuss Chapman's essay for the WNL Law Review and Kreiss's response. So welcome to the show, Anthony and Carlos. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I think this is the first time I've done a essay and response interview. So this will be fun and an interesting new uh, new format. Um, I, I wonder, Carlos, and I didn't want to spoil the surprise on this one because I really like the title of your paper. Um, I wonder if you could start by just telling listeners what the title of your essay is and why you thought that this was an important intervention. Okay, so the title of the essay is, If a Fetus is a Person, It Should Get Child Support, Due Process, and Citizenship. And uh, this essay actually is the Law Review version of a Washington Post op-ed I wrote last year that started out as a tweet that went viral and has about, I guess, 400,000 people who liked it and about 200,000 people who've retweeted it. And it grows out of all of the abortion bans that happened last year when states chose to declare fetuses persons in their individual statutes to try to get around Roe v. Wade and other, you know, the other, you know, cases that, that permit abortion. So essentially, you know, prioritizing fetal personhood over maternal personhood. So maybe you could talk a little more specifically about those state laws, because I understand different states tried to do different kinds of things, and some of the different approaches are actually relevant to the argument you make in the essay. So I wonder if just briefly you could kind of give listeners who might not have been following that particular issue closely a sort of brief description of what some of those state laws tried to do and what they were trying to accomplish. So they tried to ban abortion at the time of either a fetal heartbeat or from the time of conception on the point of, you know, making the point that human life begins at heartbeat or at conception and using, you know, to me, I think what they're trying to do is redefine, you know, since the 14th Amendment defines citizenship and personhood as born. They are trying to switch when personhood begins to conception or maybe even redefine born. It's unclear in hopes that these fetuses can get constitutional protection and thus overturn Roe v. Wade. So if I understand it correctly, then the idea behind the laws then is to sort of adopt a state-based definition of personhood for constitutional purposes in such a way as to render, at least theoretically, abortion uh, unconstitutional on the ground that you can't abort someone who's a person. And if a fetus is a person, then they couldn't be aborted. Is, is, is that like a fair understanding of what sort of like the rationale behind these laws was? I think so. And I, you know, and I think, you know, what's interesting is, you know, a lot of, a lot of the opposition claims that they're not trying to do it across the board, that they're only trying to do it for abortion purposes uh, which is difficult um, to me, just, you know, legally and just, you know, if you're making a taxonomy of, of human beings and entities and things like that, it's like, 
how can you possibly change who a human being is? Like I can change who a corporation is at any given time because we create them. But if we think of human beings as being created by a divine entity, it's very hard to conceptualize that we can give a right to a life and being or, you know, any humanoid type entity and then take it away. Mm. Well, so in your paper, you observe that, you know, as you just said, if we adopt the definition of personhood as attaching to a unborn fetus or uh, a fertilized egg at a particular point in time, then that there are consequences that naturally follow from that definition in other legal contexts than abortion. And, and I, I wonder if you could just talk briefly about what you think some of those consequences might be and how they might, at least in theory, play out in practice. Well, you know, my, my favorite ones are, if you think about social safety net issues, healthcare, um, you know, welfare, or, you know, SNAP benefits, uh, child support, life insurance, like opening bank accounts and, you know, securing a child's financial future. Um, and then jail and, you know, women who are imprisoned, what do we do about that? You know, like, does the fetus now have some human rights and constitutional rights such that a fetus can't be imprisoned? Uh, can you deport and a woman who is pregnant if her fetus is conceived on American soil? Like, is that fetus now an American citizen if we're changing when personhood begins, that change when citizenship begins, because we have a birthright citizenship system. So I think it's, you know, I don't want to say it's a slippery slope, but because I, I like all of those things, to be honest. I love the idea of letting every pregnant woman out of jail and not deporting pregnant women. But I think, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't deny women the right to an abortion because they're carrying a human being, a citizen of Alabama, a citizen of Tennessee. But then also keep them keep that citizen of Tennessee in jail who has not committed a crime or deport that citizen of Alabama to Guatemala because the woman who is in custody of them is not a citizen. Well, so have any of the people drafting and adopting these laws purporting to change the definition of a person kind of grappled with this problem at all? Or as you kind of suggest, have they sort of tried to wave it away or just pretend like the problem doesn't exist to the extent they've addressed it at all? You know, it's been, you know, a lot of people hang their hat on statutory interpretation and in that, you know, this is written into a health and safety code. It's not written into a state constitution or it's written into the occupational code for doctors it's not written. We only mean this definition of person to apply in this one place for abortion only has, has primarily been the rebuttal. Mm. And how would that work, though, insofar as the right to an abortion is, according to the Supreme Court, based in constitutional rights? I mean, how can you redefine a kind of core concept in the abortion or reproductive rights context in one area, but not in other areas? I think it doesn't work at all. And I think, I don't think it would, it, I think even if I were a pro-life person, I would have an issue with the way that these statutes are written and the way they're intended to apply. Um, if I were a pro-life person, 
who was also a lawyer and a law professor, I would either agree with me that you can't write, you can't redefine personhood in one place. You can't redefine a constitutional principle in one place and not have it apply across the board. Or I would say we just can't redefine personhood on a state level. And that's, you know, where I come down on it. Um, I think, you know, I have, I don't hear much from the other side, to be honest. Um, I do get some kind of, you know, when the op-ed ran, I got some emails of, I agree with you. And that's why I think we shouldn't be taking this personhood approach, but I'm not going to say that publicly. (laughs) Um, So, you know, the responses have been very, very interesting to me um, in that, I didn't get the backlash that I think other people get when they write op-eds or, or send tweets about reproductive rights. And I think it's because my argument is, you know, it's based in the Constitution, it's based in logic. It's not truly a pro-life or pro-choice argument. It's like, this is just how our laws work and what the Constitution says and how federalism works. And you really can't do this unless we're going to, you know, upset the entire apple cart. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting and quite compelling about it to me was the way in which your essay essentially takes the arguments of the anti-abortion move to use personhood like at face value and just asks like, well, you know, what does that mean as an actual, uh, you know, what does it actually mean to do that in practice? Like if we're, if we're taking personhood seriously in in a reproductive rights context, what kind of logical consequences flow from it? Right. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. Mm. Well, so Anthony, you wrote, I thought, a really interesting and thoughtful response piece to Carlos's argument, less directed specifically at her argument and more directed at sort of how it's situated in the context of the reproductive rights debate writ large. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the intervention that you were making and why you thought it was important to situate the argument in this way. Yeah. So, so I think, I think first of all, like Carlos's argument is spot on. Um, So what we're seeing here is this kind of two-step dance. Um, There's this first step where there's an attempt to define personhood, right? Under state law to challenge Roe versus Wade. And that's step one. And I think what step two is, um, is trying to get this emerging concept of personhood in order to you know, use it as a vehicle to find a 14th Amendment grounded right to fetal personhood, right? So, so it's, it's a long game. It's a short game and a long game. And as I'm looking at that short game and long game and thinking about Carlos's argument, um, you know, for me, what I'm really thought about was, well, why is this happening now? And and is that related, you know, is the timing related to, um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, what Carlos, I think, so wonderfully pointed out um, about how, you know, not th- well thought out these policies are. Right. So so why now and why this kind of, you know, quick movement? And and I just think it's really fundamentally about power, which I think abortion has always been about power and who has power over women and women's rights and, and you know bodily autonomy and the like. But it's about a lot more power than just that at the moment, right? It's it's to me we're at a point in in co- what I call constitutional time, which is this idea I'm I'm working on in other scholarship now. Um, but this idea that you know there are 
cycles of constitutional doctrine that develop. Um, and they have a kind of coherent ideology. Uh, the last 40 years, it's been dominated by Reagan conservatism. Um, but I think that we're at a point, uh, what I call a slippage point, where that time, that dominant coalition is weakening and fade and is about to fade away. Um, I don't think that the, that the conservative bench that you see on the Supreme Court right now is going to last much longer, to, to be honest. Um, and I think a lot of activists on the ground also know this. And so this is really fundamentally a movement that has cropped up um, because of you know Donald Trump and because of his two appointees on, on the Supreme Court. Um, and these activists are looking at the judiciary as, as it's being remade right now, looking at demographic trends, looking at public opinion trends. And I think they realize that this is their moment to take action and that if they don't constitutionalize their, their you know, social vision for, for the country now, um, that opportunity is going to be lost. And so in many ways, to me, right, it's, it's actually very reminiscent of the prohibition movement, um, right? The, the amendment that, that uh, you know, adopted prohibition um, was enacted at a point in time in order to cement, right, kind of this white rural Protestant, uh, you know, American vision uh, of, of what you know, these, these folks wanted America to look like. Um, and they did so at a time because they knew that with immigration and with changing demographics that, you know, and urbanization, that that time was not on their side. And so they rushed to, you know, to create this constitutional movement, which ultimately failed. But, but I, I think that dynamic is similar. I mean, it almost seems like a kind of revanchist movement in constitutional law that, that you're talking about, like trying to solidify a political gain that's about to dissipate in some way. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how that ought to inform the way we think about constitutional law in relation to political change. I mean, what are we doing when we do constitutional law, especially when it's controversial? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I think that there's a tension in legal academy because we want to believe that, that the law is different, that law is different than politics. And and sometimes that's true, but oftentimes in the constitutional constitutional context it's not. Um, the constitutional law, it, it's you know, constitutional doctrine is not just something that's out there in, you know, kind of you know, I always often talk about it as being like in the ether, right? That it's just out there waiting for us to discover it and that there's some objective right answer. I mean, constitutional law is really a byproduct of elections and social movements and, and political coalitions. Um, and the only way that I think really law is truly made is when um, you know, certain principles are adopted from one you know, coalition cycle to another. So, for example, you know, Brown versus Board of Education is the law of the land, um, in large part because Brown versus Board um, was not only adopted by you know the New Deal coalition courts and the New Deal coalition, but we've we've continued to adhere to it and adopt it and and celebrate it in right the next cycle of the Reagan dominated coalition. Um, and I think that that's when law becomes really something different is when uh, a principle kind of super, you know, lives beyond the coalition in which it was fashioned, right? When the next coalition embraces it as well, even if they're eating at the edges of it. Um, and, and I think that's 
right? The Roe versus Wade, though, however, has been kind of different, right? In the sense that it was adopted towards the end of the New Deal coalition time of of the court. Um, it has been eaten away at, at the edges by the the Reagan era courts, um, you know. But but the public opinion has a has by and large embraced abortion rights, which I think is quite interesting. Um, and we're at a point in time where you know I think that the that you know the the generational shifts are such that that people still embrace abortion rights, particularly uh, you know millennials and Gen Z. So so I think that we're at a point right where you know abortion rights and Roe and Casey and these kind of basic principles of, of bodily autonomy for women's reproductive rights and reproductive justice um, might you know very well become very cemented and become. A, you know, not just politics or political results, but really become law in a way that we like to think about law, even though it's a right, again, it's still a consequence of political actions and, and social movements. But I think we're at a point now where it's much more likely to be kind of path dependent and, and solidified. And that's what these folks on the ground in Alabama and Georgia and Iowa and the rest realize that this is the last moment to, to write, to kind of unstick, um, Casey and, and Roe, um, and that this is, like you said, this is their last moment to do so. Um, and so they're, they're putting forth their best effort. Now, that might actually backfire on them, right? Especially if there's a large electoral coalition that rejects Trump, you know, Donald Trump, and rejects Trump appointees and, and the Trump vision of society, in which case you have the opportunity for a totally reconstructed constitutional vision which would reject that kind of worldview. So I think they're playing with fire because on one hand, this is their moment. Um, there's no doubt about it. This is probably the most politically powerful they've been in terms of both state legislatures and the courts. But you know, the, the, the backlash that might ensue might wipe out all their gains in perpetuity. Mm. Well, so I, I, mean, I wonder if this says something important, this dynamic you identify says something important about the role of or the place of reproductive rights in relation to kind of constitutional politics. Because, you know, as you know, right, I mean, the New Deal coalition, you know, decided Roe v. Wade and created a constitutional right to abortion sort of in its senescence almost, like the last moments of that, the the Warren court and the New Deal coalition. And then, you know, we had this conservative majority for a very long time, but it doesn't seem to be really kind of focusing in on reproductive rights and on Roe v. Wade in a meaningful way until, as you say, it seems like it's kind of potentially on its last legs as well. I mean, I, I wonder what that says about what would happen. I mean, should the uh, the conservative majority today actually sort of follow through on its threat to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade and kind of shift the balance on reproductive rights. Would the move to a uh, a potential move to a more uh, progressive or, or liberal court, do you think that that court would be able to immediately reverse that move? Or would that same kind of um, kind of historical unwillingness to touch the reproductive rights question right away until 
until you don't have a choice anymore. Do you think that would persist? I mean, like, are we at kind of a turning point when it comes to that question or not? So I, I think that a future court would be much more eager to reverse any uh, attempt by the Roberts court to undermine Roe or, you know, flat out overturn it. Um, you know, my, my, actually my future colleague at Georgia State, Eric Siegel, has written recently um, that he actually, you know, he actually thinks that the court should just go ahead and do it. Um, right to do what they want to do and overturn Roe versus Wade um, and overturn Casey um, rather than dance around you know these these um, you know kind of trap walls and different different ways that the court has eaten away at the you know the core right um, you know because in his view right that it's it's better for the court to be transparent and for us to respond than for them to kind of hide the ball. Um, and I think, you know, you know, there's I mean, I, I don't know what I really think about that. But what I do think is that if they were to do that, he's quite right in his long term projection, I think, or his assumption, which is that the public would push back and would would really, um, you know, not only not only would it backfire on GOP candidates, I think, across the board, um, but I, you know, in certain, particularly in the suburbs and uh, not only would it do that, it would probably foment more political realignment uh, in a way that we haven't seen perhaps since you know, 1964, 1980. Um, it might reinvigorate calls to pack the court. Um, you know, the, the political pressures would really be quite severe on the court to reverse course. Um, and I think if you had all those kind of ingredients put together, you you would see a court, you know, once the the um, you know, the court's personnel might change a little bit. I think you would see a court that would be much more aggressive and, and eager to tackle on uh, reproductive justice and reproductive rights questions, and you know, quite you know, just liberate the doctrine and and you know, reverse and uh, breathe a lot of life into Roe and into Casey. So, um, you know, I think that's why I think the courts right now are being cautious because, you know, they're going to get more, they will do more harm to abortion rights long term if the public, you know, is, or if they do it in a way that's not as salient to the public. And, you know, by eating away at the edges, I think they can get away with a lot more than, than if they attack the, the heart of the doctrine as they want to. Um, and that's really why they, you know, they're hesitant because they know the long term losses for them would be severe, I think. Mm. Well, so Carla, Carlos, I was going to say, like, while your paper doesn't address these particular questions on its surface, it's very much kind of intervening in that conversation. And it feels like there's a lot of kind of implicit observations about the current political climate sort of embedded in the paper. And I, I, I would, I, I wonder if you would be interested in reflecting on sort of your own thoughts uh, on some of the issues that Anthony was just talking about. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with Anthony, and I, I like his analogy to prohibition because I envision what's happening now as, you know, 40 years of incrementalism, like 40 years of just chipping away at it, you know, death by a thousand cuts for abortion rights. And I, I think that, you know, those who are savvy in the pro-life movement prefer that approach to this sweeping overturn row fetal personhood approach because people don't know what their rights are and don't realize that their rights have been taken away. Um, and so you're right in that my, my op-ed is very much in the, the, the article now getting at, you know, people don't know the full extent of what their rights should be. Um, they also don't know which of their rights are gone. 
and that existed before. Um, you know, people don't realize, um, and I was, I should disclose, I was on a Planned Parenthood board for several years in Texas. You know, people don't know, people don't understand until they want an abortion that they can't get one on demand. You know, people don't know that there's no abortion clinic in their state until they need one because they think, oh, Roe v. Wade, Casey, I have a right to choose. And they don't understand what's been happening on a micro level, step by step until it's gone. You know, I've even had a friend who had a miscarriage and medically there are lots of things about abortions and miscarriages that are similar and I'm not a doctor, so I won't get into it, but um, she went to get a prescription filled and it was in one of those States where pharmacists had the right to deny you a prescription and the pharmacist denied her the prescription she needed for a miscarriage because he thought she was having an abortion. And she was someone who was pro-life previously. And she's like, oh my God, I can't believe this person's infringing on my privacy. And how dare I have to explain to the pharmacist that I'm not having an abortion. And I was like, well, sweetie, this is what happens to women every day. And, and this is what you've chosen. You know, this is what it means when we let, you know, you know, we let legislators invade our personal rights and our autonomy. And so I think because it's been so small and it wasn't a complete reversal, it can continue. Mm -hmm. But if it does, if, you know, if we completely reverse Roe and Casey, you know, one, I think the scenario that I talk about in the article, you know, a, a system of, of tiered personhood or, or, you know, dual personhood where, you know, in some states, you know, a New York, a Washington state, all the West Coast states, all the liberal states, you've got full access and you've got, you know, arbitrage of women going state to state to get access. In other states, you've got complete shutdown and then I think you do have political upheaval in those states. You know, a lot of red states are going to turn blue. A lot of, you know, as Anthony says, the suburbs are going to revolt against the idea of having their personal autonomy taken away. And it take, it's those moments, those one by one moments, you know, of a conservative woman like my friend having, you know, having those experiences that become exponential when Roe is completely gone. Well, I know there have been uh, some responses, Carlos, both to your tweet, your op-ed, and to the essay that we've we've been talking about. Um, I, I wonder if you and Anthony could reflect on those responses a little, and maybe also talk about sort of where you think this debate is likely to go next. I can start. Um, I would say, I mean, if we go back to the tweet and the op-ed. You know, you obviously, if you do anything that public, you get the crazies. So I, I, you know, I discount the crazies as outliers, the, you know, mailing pictures of aborted fetuses and, you know, that kind of thing that happens when you talk about reproductive rights. So I discount those. Um, the ones I find interesting are responses um, from people who are pro-life, who will say, I actually agree that like, I believe in life so much that everything you say, I agree with. Like we should 100% protect every aspect of human right, human life. You know, I don't know why we aren't protecting human life in that way anyway. I'm bothered by pregnant women being incarcerated, like just, just all in. And then I, I, then the third kind of angle is the have your cake and eat it to people who are, you know, don't be absurd. It's clear that that statute is only meant to cover that one thing, they're not trying to change the constitution. They're not trying to change immigration laws. They only want to change what it means to be a person in their one state. We interpret statutes narrowly. The 14th amendment is king. 
And that's kind of the spectrum, uh, you know, of what I've gotten personally. Um, And I think, you know, Anthony's probably better talking about what happened, what's, you know, what's happening on the, in the con law world in response. Yeah. So I I guess, you know, what I would say is to spring springboard off of what Carlos was, was talking about with, you know, this idea that people talk about, well, it's narrow and it's, you know, it's not this broad kind of attack on, uh, abortion rights across the board, or, or you know, it's not this unthought, not well thought out, um, you know, beginnings of a social movement. It's a very narrow thing. Um, you know, when I hear those kinds of arguments, I think back to you know, twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen, um, when a lot of state legislatures began to reconsider adopting state level religious freedom restoration acts. And the argument was, well, RIFRAs don't discriminate. RIFRAs aren't, um, you know, RIFRAs aren't anti-LGBTQ. RIFRAs aren't anti-women. RIFRAs, you know, and, and it went on and on and on. Um, and in a lot of ways, it was kind of a, re- a response to the Supreme Court's interpretation of the federal RIFRA and Hobby Lobby, right, which which denied or which which really restricted um, the the. Uh, the requirements for religious employers to provide uh, free uh, contraceptive coverage for their employees. Um, and so you, but you heard all these arguments that this is narrow, this is narrow, but then you, know, you fast forward four or five years from that and you start getting, uh, you know, recently out of the eighth circuit, right? You, you actually get these RIFRA based decisions um, which actually harm anti-discrimination law and, and undermine and uh, anti-discrimination uh, statutes. And so, you know, the the arguments that we were told four or five years ago were ludicrous and were kind of, you know, taking things to their you know, logical extreme um, actually manifested. And so I, I think that a lot of these arguments that we're seeing about, you know, the narrowness of what places like Alabama and Iowa and Ohio and, and the like are trying to do, um, you know, it doesn't really pass the, the sniff test um, because I think inevitably what would happen is is you, you get on the slippery slope where you, one or two states get traction with this kind of legislation and the floodgates will get opened. And then the next question for activists on the ground will be, well, what, what's the next Thing that we can do to, to trample on abortion access and abortion rights. Um, so I don't buy that argument that that you know is so often seen. But I think the reason why it's made so so often is because it seems to be kind of a you know it, I think it's the one that's most um, you know that tries to assuage people's fears and tries to kind of look or tries to package these pieces of legislation as being relatively benign and hiding what the long term game is. Um, you know, and that's that's a that's a smart strategy, but it also avoids the need to you know, squarely address right all these other issues that Carlos and, and folks have raised about the the implications of of this of these le- you know, these pieces of legislation and what might happen if they're constitutionalized and right so they can avoid they can make it look small they can they can they can you know hide the ball in terms of the long term games but most importantly they don't actually have to address the issue if they focus on the narrowness of it mm. well Carlos Anthony Thanks so much for coming on the show today. The essay that Carlos wrote was, in my opinion, really clever and provocative. And I think 
that this conversation has helped to illuminate some of the really profound issues about uh, reproductive rights in a constitutional sense, but about constitutional more, law more broadly that, that it raises. So I, I really appreciate you, both of you coming on to talk about it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. No, 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 no. Ain't no use to send your mother. No, 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 no. 